Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Hey, can we start off by giving a round of applause to all of our mamas in the room this morning? Um, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Being a mom is such a high calling and a big responsibility, and uh, we love the mamas here at Harvest. So thankful uh, for you guys, and I am just hoping that your family really spoils you and takes care of you today. You all deserve it. Uh, Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Romans 7? Uh, We're going to be in Romans 7. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles right now who will get a Bible to you. If you're visiting, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here. So thankful that you're hanging out with us this weekend. Uh, Really, really praying and hoping that you are impacted by our time together. And uh, just another word while we're passing out Bibles and turning to Romans 7. If you are a mom of a high school student, um, can I give you some advice? I just want to remind you, don't believe the lie that your children have a choice when it comes to Camp Harvest. All right? You're the mom. They're not. Sign them up. And um, in all seriousness, um, I am so for and love Jordan Grotenheis and uh, the ministry that he's leading with our high schoolers. Uh, Camp is going to be a transformative weekend. So I would encourage, invite friends, invite cousins. I'd love to see that place packed out. We're so excited about what God is going to do there. And uh, just uh, to bring us up to speed, just to remind us, um, we've been doing a series called How People Change. And we've been in Romans 6 and 7. And what Paul has been doing in these two chapters is he's been kind of primarily talking about two ways we practically reject God. Throw up that next slide. Here are the two ways. In Romans 6, he says the first way we reject God is we run towards sin. We rebel against God. And it's this idea that, God, I don't want you. I want to do my own thing. I want to live for myself. I want to follow my own law. I want to live for my glory. And that is an elevation of ourselves, and it leads to death. And then last week in Romans 7, he's like, the other thing we can do is is we can marry ourselves to the law, which is moralism, that I'm going to be a good person and earn God's favor by my own goodness. And that's also a rejection of God and elevating ourselves. It's not that we don't want God. We think that we don't need God. I'm a good person. I can do enough. I don't have a major sin issue. Like I am good. I'm just going to do my own thing. This also leads to death. So this is kind of the backdrop of where he picks up in Romans 7, starting at verse 15. Follow along as I read. Romans 7, verse 15. He says this. He's talking about himself now. He goes, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord, or through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin." Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. I hope you feel encouraged and uplifted. Um, Hope you are are blessed. So um, the good news is, I remember like five or six years ago, we were doing a study through the book of Mark and Mother's Day fell right when Jesus was teaching on divorce and remarriage. So here's the good news. This isn't our worst Mother's Day message ever, all right? We got that going for us. Um, But Paul goes dark here, doesn't he? 
He's like, man, I, I can't do the things that I want to do and, and the things that I, I don't want to do, I end up doing. And I, I hate myself most of the time and I'm frustrated and I love God and I want to serve him in my heart and in my mind. But the way my life plays out practically, I'm a disaster most of the time. So can we be honest at church for a moment? How many of you resonate with Paul and his words here in the, this struggle? All right, raise them up high, be, 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 be bold. Yeah, okay, look around, it's all of us. Right? This is a struggle that is real. And so here's what I would say. I actually think this morning is going to be very, very encouraging for us. Because what we're going to see when Paul lays out this struggle that he is dealing with, there is a ton of hope for you and me, both in the fact that we struggle and that we can thrive in the struggle. So here's the big idea that's going to set the tone. It's this. It's that following Jesus demands engaging in a battle with ourselves. That to be a follower of Jesus Christ means we are signing up for a fight with ourselves. Paul writes about this again in Galatians 5. He says this, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to each other to keep you doing the things you want to do. All right, so what Paul's saying is, is that as a follower of Jesus, we have this inner desire, I want to honor the Lord and I wanna change and I wanna have victory and I wanna love other people well and I want to serve God and I want to glorify God. But there's this other part of us that it's like, man, I am so self-centered and I am so selfish and I want to make the world revolve around me and I want what I want when I want it. And these two things, this sin that dwells in us and this desire to honor the Lord, it's this fight that we are living out practically each and every day. All right, so here's the goal for this morning. It's very, very simple. If the struggle is real, if this is a fight we are all engaging in, I wanna talk about three ways we can prepare for this fight and four ways that you and I can actually thrive in the midst of this struggle. So let's start, start with how we prepare for the fight. Here's the first. Um, we need to see the nature of sin clearly. Right, Paul kind of lays out to us very, very clearly how sin works in our lives. And when I say we need to see it clearly, here's what I mean. I think a lot of us in here, we ascribe to this view of humanity like it's a bell curve. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like on one far side of the bell curve, there's the 2% of people who are just good people. They're built different. They're righteous, they're holy, they're intelligent. They don't struggle like you and I struggle. They are way more successful. They accomplish great things. And it's like, man, this is the 2% of people who are just awesome. And probably in your mind right now, you're thinking of people who would be in that 2% and you're like, I don't like them, right? Life is easy for them. They're just great people. And then on the other side of the bell curve is the 2% that are just wicked, evil people. They were born that way. They're always going to be wicked or evil. Maybe we're thinking of criminals or government dictators or Green Bay Packer fans, right? Like there's just nothing you can do for them. And listen, I'm obviously kidding. Not all criminals are terrible people, um, <laughs> right? But it's like, they were always going to be wicked. There was no hope for them. But then we think the 96% kind of in the middle, that's you and me. And it's like, you know what? We're mostly good. We're not perfect, we have our flaws, we have our good days and our bad days, but as long as no one abuses us or as long as no one puts us in a situation where we have to do something crazy, um, we're gonna be mostly good, moral, okay people. And Paul is blowing up this paradigm right now because if anyone 
would be on that far 2% of I'm righteous and I'm good and I'm special, it would be the Apostle Paul. Like I would argue that outside of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul might be the most influential man in the history of the world. Him taking the gospel to the known world at the time of Christ and the impact that that message has had on government and law and philosophy and our lives for the last 2000 years, I think he might be the most influential person ever. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I can't do the things that I wanna do. And I'm frustrated with myself and I'm angry at myself and there's always sin following me around like this shadow looming over my life that I'm not that good and I'm not anywhere near perfect. In fact, I spend most of my life frustrated that I'm not who I want to be. Look at verse 15. He goes, for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Then look down at verse 21. He goes, I find there to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So he's like, even when I am doing the things that I want to do, evil's right there. And so here's what I would say. You know, there's a very, very fine line between doing what is right and doing what is good and then doing those things for selfish, sinful motives. Like I can see John and I can go up to you and I can be super kind and caring. Hey, how are you doing? How's your family? How's life going? And I can just care about you and ask you how you're doing. And that could be good and right and a blessing to him and a good thing to do. But I can easily do that with the motive that, hey, I know John's about to go to small group. And guess what I want John to do at small group? I want him to tell everyone, man, I ran into Cal and he was so nice and caring and loving and compassionate. So even the good that I'm doing, I'm doing it for selfish motives and it's actually not a good thing. It's sin dwelling in me. This is why Paul says, we don't even understand our own hearts half the time. Our hearts deceive us and the good things we do, we do it because we want to be seen as good, which is inherently self-absorbed. The struggle is real. And here's what I need you to understand. What Paul is showing us is life is not good versus evil. It's not cops versus robbers, that everyone has the capacity for sin and wickedness and evil. We need to understand the nature of sin. Here's the next thing we need to do to get ready for this fight. We need to understand what's coming. Okay, here's what I need you to understand. This struggle isn't ending on this side of eternity. It's not going away. You don't get to graduate from this fight. Look at verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, here's what you need to remember about Paul right now. Paul is writing at the end of his life when he writes these words. He's already done all of the amazing things in his ministry. He's gone on the missionary journeys. He's been persecuted for Christ. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He stayed faithful. He's planted churches. He's seen thousands and thousands of people get saved. Like he's at the end. And guess what he's saying? He's saying, I am a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's writing at the end of his life saying, this fight, this struggle that I'm in, it's still overwhelming to me and it's strong and it's not going away. So here's what's interesting. There's some people and there's some denominations who believe that you and I, it's possible that we can achieve sinless perfection here on earth. That if we're saved long enough and we're sanctified long enough that we can not sin anymore. And um, even though that would be amazing, I just don't think it's biblical. And the people that believe that, they've got a big Romans 7 problem, don't they? 
Because here you got Paul, if anyone could make that argument, it should be him. And he's like, no, 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 I'm a mess. So what they do is they say, well, in Romans 7, Paul must be referring back to what he thought before he was saved. That this must have been the struggle he felt before he was saved. Here's the problem with that. Look at the language he uses in Romans 7. If you go back to the first part of Romans 7, he talks about being married to the law before he was saved, and he uses past tense language. I was married to the law. It's past tense. Here in this part of Romans, it's all present tense. This is where I am right now. This is how I'm struggling. This is what my life looks like. In fact, in earlier in Romans 7, he's like, before I knew that coveting was a sin, I was actually way more free because I didn't know that it was wrong. And once I knew it was wrong, I was like, man, I'm coveting all of the time. Paul is talking about himself at the end of his life. And so here's what I would say. Um, This is why false teaching and specifically prosperity gospel can be so devastating. Um, In the book of Jude, uh, Jude is, it's a very, very short letter. It's only one chapter. And Jude is writing to some believers and he's trying to warn them about the danger of false teaching. Here's what he says. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing for you Uh, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Look what he says in verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, so in verse four, Jude lays out, here's how false teaching works. There's two common factors. The first is all false teaching will deny the person and work of Jesus. They're gonna minimize it. Hey, he wasn't really perfect. He wasn't really fully God and man. He just was an enlightened teacher. Um, There's more than one way to God outside of Jesus. There's a minimizing of Jesus as Savior and Lord. The other thing it does though, it says it perverts the grace of God into sensuality. So here's what he's saying. It twists how God's grace work and it turns it into, hey, you can do whatever you want. You don't need to change. You don't need to fight this inner struggle. You don't need to desire to honor the Lord. God saved you. He's given you grace. All of your sins forgiven. Just do whatever you want. If you want to run to sin, run to sin. God is just love. He's only love. He's not holy. He's not righteous. He's not Lord. You don't need to wrestle. Don't pursue righteousness. It's a perverting of the grace of God. Or the other way this works is, is, hey, God's all about you and your life and your plan. And he's going to make you healthy and he's going to make you wealthy and he's going to make all of your relationships perfect and there's never going to be pain. And what's so devastating about that is that people sign up for this version of Christianity and then they're like, man, I am struggling and life's not that easy and I live in a fallen world and I thought that Jesus was going to take this all away and they end up getting discouraged and they quit on Jesus before they even try him. So church, can I remind us of a really, really helpful principle right now? Throw up the next slide. Um, It's just this, life is hard. Frustration and suffering are normal, and God is exceedingly good and faithful in the midst of it all, isn't he? Life is hard. Frustration and suffering are normal, but God is exceedingly good and faithful in the midst of it all. Amen? All right, here's the third thing we need to do to prepare for the fight. It's this. Um, I need to realize I'm not the only one in this fight, that I'm not alone so um, I, need to, uh, I need someone's help. I need to use a congregant um, to help me. So who do I want to embarrass? Um, Paula, can you just stand up for a second? You don't need to come forward. You can say, hi, this is Paula. Everyone say hi to Paula. Uh, this is really fitting because Paula is like one of the most amazing moms that I know. Happy Mother's Day. Okay, 
here's what I want you guys to see. So if we all say we resonate with this struggle, that means that I am fighting this fight with myself. That means that you are fighting this fight with yourself. Guess what else that means? Paula, do you ever fight that fight with yourself? Yes, she's fighting it too. All of us are in this fight together. So guess what Paula really needs from the family of God? She needs the family of God to come around her and say, Paula, I love you and I'm for you. Can we all say that to Paula right now? Paula, I love you and I'm for you. Doesn't that feel good? All right, you can sit down. Thank you. Let's give Paula a round of applause really quickly. Um, Listen, we should be filled with grace and compassion for one another when we have bad days and when we struggle because we are all fighting this same fight. All right, look at me. Give me your eyes for a second. We need to be very, very, very careful not to put people up on pedestals, right? There's a very famous phrase that the people you idolize, you end up quickly demonizing, right? Here's what that means. If you are around anyone for long enough, they're going to let you down. You're going to see the the worst sides of them because none of us are the finished product. None of us are perfect. We are all fighting this fight with the sin and selfishness and pride that dwells within us. This is how we prepare for the fight. So now let's shift gears and look at how can we navigate and actually thrive while we're in this wrestling, this fight. Here's four ways to thrive in the fight. Here's the first. Um, Be aware of and affected by your sin. Don't minimize it. Don't push it away, be aware of it and be affected by your sin. Like what I love about this passage is you see all over the place that Paul is not okay with this. He's like, I hate this about me. I hate that there's this sin that dwells in my members and I hate that I can't do the things that I want to do. And here's what I would say, that's a good thing. It's good to feel this tension. So here's a a cool kind of Mother's Day type story honoring my mom. Um, I remember when I was in seventh grade, um, I was saved, I was a Christian, but as all middle schoolers are, I was very, very inconsistent. And I was super um, selfish and I kind of had a, shockingly enough, I had a quick mouth and I would talk back to teachers and that would occasionally get me into trouble. And uh, I remember it was one day at school where I'd gotten into trouble, I was back talking my teacher and I knew my mom and dad were gonna find out and I was just was beating myself up. And I came out to school and my mom was waiting to pick all the kids up and I was the first in the car and I was like in tears, emotional. And my mom's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I got in trouble today. And, and I'm like, mom, here's the thing, like reason I'm upset though. Like, I'm not sure I'm actually a Christian. And I'm like, is it possible that I want to be saved and I want to follow Jesus, but I'm doing it wrong and, and it's not gonna work and I'm gonna get to, the, to heaven and Jesus is going to reject me? Like, I just feel like I mess up all the time and I'm so selfish and I, I was fighting with this fight, but I didn't know how to navigate it. And uh, what my mom said to me in that moment in so many ways changed my life. She goes, Cal, the fact that you're struggling with this and the fact that you're wrestling with this is actually evidence of God's spirit at work in your life. It's a good thing. She goes, people that don't have the Holy Spirit, people that aren't saved, they don't care about pleasing Jesus. They don't care about honoring the Lord. They are absolutely content to live for themselves. So she goes, the fact that you're wrestling with this, it actually gives me confidence that you are actually saved. And then she's like, you're so grounded for talking back to your teachers, but that's a (laughs) different story. But it was so helpful to me. Listen, I am really concerned about the person in here who's like, ah, this is who I'm always going to be. I've always struggled with this. This is who I always am. This is how it's always going to be. I remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Taylor, in talking about our need to change, he said something so profound. 
He's like, when we say I'm never going to change or I can't have victory in this, what we're really doing, it's not an allegation against ourselves. It's an allegation against the power of God in our life. And then he says, do you really believe that in five years or 10 years or five decades from now, that God's spirit alive in your heart isn't strong enough to give you victory over the sin that dwells inside of you? Like we're saying, God, you're not strong enough. You're not powerful enough. And so often we just give up in the fight. That's the person I'm concerned about. It's okay to wrestle. Look at verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Don't lose that desire, church. Don't lose the tension. It is evidence that God's spirit is active in you. The tension is good. Right, here's the second way we thrive in the fight. Don't let the fight impact your identity. Don't let the fight impact your identity. Look down at verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So do me a favor. If you take notes in your Bible, underline that phrase. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the key verse in this whole thing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the tension, in the midst of this frustration, he's like, man, am I thankful to God for Jesus Christ. And we're gonna look at this next week, but guess how he starts Romans 8? He says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's like, even as we struggle, even as we fight, I am perfectly loved. I am perfectly forgiven. I am perfectly adopted. I am perfectly righteous. I am perfectly saved. I am perfectly secure because my salvation is not dependent on my effort and my victory and how good I am. It's all dependent on the fact that Jesus came and he loved me and he died and he redeemed me, amen? You don't lose your identity. One of the ways we hold fast to our identity is we need to be careful about what voices we listen to when we are in this fight. Like church, you understand that the voices you hear in your head, they're not all your own, right? Do you know that Jesus says that we have an enemy? And in John 8, he refers to the enemy as the father of lies. And so sometimes, especially when we're in this fight, what's going to happen is the enemy is going to lie to us to try to discourage us, to try to get us to give up in this fight so that we don't have victory in our walk with Christ. This is a real thing that happens to all of us. All right, so how do I know if I'm hearing the voice of the Lord or the voice of the enemy? Well, I got a chart that will help you understand this. Let's talk about the voice of the enemy first. Um, The voice of the enemy, when he talks to you, it's always going to be very, very general. He's going, so let's use this as an example. Say that I am hanging out with my kids and they're driving me crazy and I react to them in a way that's sinful. I snap at them, I yell at them, I'm impatient and I don't handle it well. In that moment, the enemy's gonna be like, Cal, you're a terrible father. You're awful. It's gonna be very, very general. You're a failure. And then he's gonna follow that with condemnation. You're going to ruin your kids' lives. Your kids are going to hate you. Your kids are going to hate the Lord because you're their dad. It it, it is, you are going to mess everything up. It's general and it leads to condemnation and it wants me to become hopeless. This is how the lies of the enemy work. And, And this can translate to marriage issues, to addiction issues. You're a failure. You're never gonna get over this. You're never gonna have victory. This is who you're always going to be. The voice of the Holy Spirit is different. It's very, very specific. It says, hey, Cal, you didn't respond well to your kids in this moment. And it's not going to lead to condemnation. It's going to lead to conviction. It's, it's going to say, hey, you know what? Um, you need to go make this right with your kids. 
You need to go ask forgiveness. In fact, you got an incredible opportunity to model the gospel to your kids by saying, hey, daddy's not perfect and he messed up and he needs Jesus, just like he says that we need Jesus. And it leads to hope in Christ. That listen, you can actually use this moment of failure to build into your kids' discipleship. There's a difference between the voice of the enemy and the voice of the spirit. And look at me, this is why small group and community is so important. Because there's a lot of us that if we were honest, we come in here and we've been just bombarded with lies from the enemy, haven't we? And when we hear that enough, we start to believe that it's true and not a lie. And that's when we need the family of God to come around us and be like, no, 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 this isn't true. This isn't what is real, that you are precious and honored and loved. And this is your identity in Christ. And you can have victory in this. We can't let this affect our identity. Here's the third way we thrive. It's very, very simple. We just need to hang in there. Not give up, be comfortable living with adversity. Um, so I have had like the busiest week of my year, maybe this past week, um, this, a week ago Sunday, um, I preached the weekend services and Bo had a soccer game. Monday, Bo had soccer practice. Uh, Tuesday, Judah had a baseball game. Uh, Wednesday, Bo had soccer practice. Uh, Thursday, we had our school's elementary school musical, which by the way, when God's like, hey, Cal, I wanna remind you that you're selfish and are self-centered, I'm just gonna make you sit through an elementary school musical, right? I'm there losing my mind. And his, and the musical was great. I was not, that's how that went Thursday night. Uh, Friday, we had a baseball and soccer game. Saturday, I've got a soccer game that went straight to church and then had small group after. And then I preached today and I've got another soccer game this afternoon. Like it's been a wildly busy run and I get that it's May and this is kind of what happens at the end of the spring. But what's interesting is my son's soccer team, um, it's full of nine and 10 year olds and they're doing traveling soccer and they're actually a really, really good and talented team. They play well together, they're skilled. And in the fall, we were just killing everyone we played. And so our coaches are like, we wanna get better competition for the boys. So they bumped them up an age group in the spring. And so what happened is, is they started playing kids that were bigger, stronger, and faster than them. And what was very, very apparent is even though our kids were really, really good, our kids really struggled with dealing with adversity. When a kid pushed them over, they would stay down. If they got behind a goal, you would see our players start to get teary and melt down. They didn't know how to handle it. And what's cool is, is as the spring has gone on, they've gotten better, they've gotten stronger, they've learned to deal with adversity. And I think in so many ways, we as Christians really struggle to deal with adversity, right? There's that famous phrase, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face, right? And I think so often when we think of the Christian life, we think of, man, this is what it's gonna be like when everything's going good. And this is my view of Christianity that's kind of a perfect version of it. But when I have a bad week, And when I feel like I'm losing the fight with the sin that dwells in me, how do we respond in that moment? Do we confess and repent and move to God? Or or do we shell up and, and do we justify and do we make excuses and do we isolate ourselves because we don't know how to deal with the adversity when it hits? You know, it's interesting. Um, One of the things that um, I think I'm just learning in my life is that God is way smarter than us and he knows what we want or what we need way better than what we think we might need. And what I wanna show you is as Paul in this passage, he shows us three ways to hang in there and he calls us to hang in there towards worship. And here's what I mean when I say that God knows what we need better than what we do, right? God, when he established creation, 
right? From the very onset, he set aside one day for worship and for rest. Why did he do that? Why does he call us to gather together once a week? You know why he does that? Because on weeks when I'm doing amazing, and I'm having victory in this fight with this, my sinful flesh and, and things are going well and I'm thriving and my relationships are healthy and good. Guess what I do? I come to church and I lift high the name of Jesus in worship. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. And then I sit under the authority of God's word. I let him talk to me and then I move towards him in prayer. And then guess what happens on weeks where I'm a mess and I'm not winning the fight and I'm losing and I'm discouraged and I feel like a failure. I come to church and I lift high the name of Jesus in worship. It's not about me, it's about him. I sit under the authority of God's word. I let him talk to me and then I move towards him in prayer. God establishes weekly worship for us because he knows we're going to have good weeks and we're going to have bad weeks and we need to be reminded that God is king and he's Lord and he's good and he's faithful and he is righteous and he is forgiving no matter how we walk in this place. He knows what we need. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is worshiping as he struggles. Here's the next thing we need to do. We need to continue towards community. Continue towards community. You have to remember, Paul is writing out his struggles to a church. This was a real group of people that would have received this, who would have known what Paul was going through who could have prayed for him, who could have sent him letters back, encouraging him, who could have uplifted him. Like he is not holding this all to himself, right? He's not believing that lie that we've got to put on this facade and fake it till we make it. And we can't let people know when we're not doing great. He's like, man, I've done all of this for the Lord and I'm still a mess and I need your prayer and I need your support because I feel like a failure. He's actually modeling for us what authenticity in community looks like. Third way we hang in there is we continue towards calling, right? Paul, in the fight, in the struggle, he still planted churches. He still endured persecution. He still went on his missionary journeys. It didn't allow, he didn't allow the fact that he wasn't perfect to put him on the sidelines. And I want you to hear this. I think a lot of us believe that God is only going to use us when we become a better, more righteous version of ourselves, and that's a lie. Listen, God is calling you to advance the kingdom of God in your sphere of influence today, right now. Whether that's with your family or in your neighborhood or on your kids' soccer team and the parents or in uh, your workplace. Like we are called to be a light for the gospel. And here's the thing. I think we worry that, man, if I'm bold with my faith in Jesus, people are gonna see how inconsistent I am and it's gonna make a fool of me and it's gonna make a fool of Jesus and the gospel. And I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna be the thing that screws it up. Well, listen, you're going to screw up. But that's actually your best opportunity, again, to show authenticity by saying, hey, I messed up. I still struggle with sin. I'm not perfect. I need to ask your forgiveness. I'm so thankful that Jesus is consistent to work and move in my life. Don't let the fight keep you on the bench because if you're waiting till the fight's over to be used for God, you're gonna be on the bench your entire life. It doesn't end. And then here's the fourth way we thrive in the fight. It's simply this. Um, fight with joy, fight with joy. And I was thinking this week, how do I rightly explain this? And here's the best way I could come up with. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, our soccer team made it to the state finals. I'm looking at one of my teammates on that team right now. And uh, we were um, the number one ranked team in the state. We were the heavy favorites. Um, 
our school had been to the state finals a few times in the previous years and hadn't won. I was at Western Michigan Christian High School. And so there was a lot of pressure on us to win. We had a great year. And uh, we get to the finals and we play the first half. And I'm not kidding you. We outshot the team we were playing 20 to one and we were losing one to nothing. It just was one of those games. We hit the post. The goalie was saving everything we shot. We couldn't score. They got one chance and they scored. And there was this sense of like panic and nervousness, like, oh no, is this going to happen again? But there was also this real sense of like, if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're gonna break through, we're gonna win, we're gonna score. And then guess what happened in the second half? 10 minutes in, we scored to tie it. And then five minutes later, we scored again to take the lead. And then 10 minutes later, we scored again to go up 3-1. And then five minutes later, we scored again to go up 4-1. to And with about 10 minutes to go, the game was over. Like the other team had given up. They weren't creating any chances. They weren't running hard. Like we had beaten them. They were devastated. So for those last 10 minutes, listen, we were still in the fight. We were still in the game. We were going for loose balls. We were playing, we were passing, we were doing all of the things. But guess what would happen when the ball would go out of bounds? We were hugging each other and we were pumping up the fans and our coach was crying and we were celebrating the fact that even though the game was still going, we had won, the game was over. There was no way this team was coming back. And I think that's the perfect picture of how we are to live our Christian lives. Like, listen, we are in the fight right now, but the war is won, the battle is over. Jesus Christ is alive and he is ruling and reigning and he is coming again and he is going to defeat sin and this inner struggle once and for all. In fact, this is the one moment in the midst of eternity that we can glorify and worship and honor the Lord by trusting him in the struggle. The rest of the millions of years we're going to exist with Jesus, we're not going to have to do this. So we fight and we struggle and we hang in there knowing that we can have joy because the battle is won. All right, we struggle, we fight, we deal with the frustration with a joy that is unshakable because our security is in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, so we do not lose heart for though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about persecution But I think the same is true in this fight with our sin. We endure it with joy because what is coming our way, the eternal weight of glory, this struggle won't even compare. So listen, I love you. I understand. Again, life is hard. Frustration and suffering is normal, but God is exceedingly good. So what I wanna be is a church that fights well, that struggles well, and then lifts one another up in the process. Happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you for all of the moms that are here in this room. God, what a just cool thing to be able to celebrate them today. Um, I pray that this would be a um, comfort to us, that those that walk in here who just feel defeated and feel like sin had the last word this week, that we would be reminded that, no, no, you get the last word that you are on the throne, that there is grace and that we are not alone in this struggle. May we be encouraged in that. May we be a church that um, looks to you in the midst of the fight. We want your victory. We want to glorify you. We need your help. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.